This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Army of the Potomac had Bruce Catton to record its ups and more frequent downs in a classic trilogy. The Confederate Army of Tennessee had two magnificent books by Thomas Connolly. The Union Army of the Tennessee has Stephen Woodworth. The Army of the Cumberland has Larry Daniels. Even the Army of the Ohio has some guy who wrote a book about it. Yet the most famous Civil War army of them all, Robert E. Lee's legendary Army of Northern Virginia, did not find its chronicler until 2008, when Professor Joseph T. Gladhar wrote General Lee's Army from Victory to Collapse. He followed it up earlier this year with an even more in-depth look at Soldiering in the Army of Northern Virginia, a statistical portrait of the troops who served under Robert E. Lee. We'll learn some surprising things about those troops when we talk today with Joe Gladhar on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected listen listen the world is talking the world talk radio variety channel welcome to civil war talk radio i'm jerry prokopovich coming to you from civil war talk radio world headquarters in greenville north carolina in the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. A beautiful fall day, October 2011. But as always, speaking just for myself, not for ECU, not for the History Department, not for the University of North Carolina system or its many constituent institutions. I know that our guest today will likewise be speaking for himself. Uh, UNC and its uh, organizations can do their own talking. We'll we'll keep it to ourselves today. Talking uh, feels different today. I don't know how this sounds to you out there in Civil War talk radio land, but uh, we are moving to the new era. We are entering the 21st century, uh, 11 years late, uh, using a slightly different technology, uh, Skype instead of a land telephone line. So I'm talking to you uh, using a headset, which in my mind's eye makes me look like uh, Luke Skywalker with, with a very cool uh, audio thing that, that allows me to communicate but as I see my reflection in the computer screen it's, it's more like Ernestine the uh, telephone uh, operator uh, with this thing sticking out in front of my mouth. How it sounds I don't know. Uh, I'm told by our overlords at World Talk Radio that this is a much better way to do things and the sound will be a lot better. This is our, our first time doing it. Send an email and let me know what you think if uh, the sound is better. Maybe you don't want the sound to be better, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, let me know what you think and we'll we'll go forward from there. 
in time, of course, all people will use Skype for all forms of communication, but uh, whether in person or otherwise, but we're not there yet. If you don't know what Skype is, then, then uh, after you learn about Twitter, Skype will be next. Well, last week there was no live show. I attended a meeting in Chicago uh, for a grant sponsored by the American Library Association. This was uh, in connection with their program, Let's Talk About It. That's a series of programs they run. The subtitle of this one is Understanding the Civil War. And Ed Ayers, who has been on this show, uh, the president of the University of Richmond, was is the leading uh, scholarly organizer of this program. And I will say it was quite a worthwhile uh, way to spend the weekend. I enjoyed meeting uh, Ed. I've talked to him on the show, but not seen him in person before. And uh, talking to other people, including uh, Dwight Pickhaefley, who will be on, on our show in January uh, as a result of this meeting, and some other folks. If you keep an eye on public libraries in your neighborhood, 50 different libraries around the country will be sponsoring these get-togethers uh, in the spring where there's a, a, a standard book list that everyone reads and there are a series of five book discussions, each one led by a local uh, scholar type person. Uh, I'll be doing the ones in New Bern, North Carolina. But check your own local libraries and see if they're doing this. Uh, the book of readings that, that uh, Dr. Ayers put together is quite good and the other materials uh, that are being read in conjunction with it uh, are interesting as well. Uh, they're not all the same sorts of things. There's novels and uh, uh, letters and political readings and uh, various kinds of things. James McPherson's book on Antietam is one of the selections. Uh, things a lot of uh, you will have already read. But I think it'll be interesting to see how people discuss these in context uh, of a public library discussion group. Traditionally, the library discussion groups tend to be uh, mostly female, uh, I was told at this meeting, whereas the listenership of Civil War talk radio is uh, largely, but by no means exclusively, uh, middle-aged, white male, bearded, slightly overweight, looks just like me, in other words. Uh, not exclusively by any means. I know I've, I've heard from many listeners who, who tell me they're nothing like me, and I appreciate that. But uh, if, you, if it's in your neighborhood, go to it. Uh, sign up for the book club. Uh, you get to borrow the books, read them, and uh, share your thoughts with people in your neighborhood on what the Civil War was about and how you understand it. Uh, I'm talking... I don't know if I sound different to you, but the Skype thing has got me thrown for a loop because I'm not holding a phone to my ear and I don't know what to do with my hands. I'm clasping them in front of me right now instead of holding a receiver. Uh, and sometimes I'm gesturing with them vividly, but you're not seeing that. Uh, oh, well. Coming up on the show in weeks ahead, uh, by which time Skype will be old news. Uh, no new show next week. It's the week of the Southern Historical Association meeting. I wish I were going to it, but I'm doing something else. Uh, but I won't be able to do the show next Friday, so we'll have a, a rerun. But on November 4th, Robert Kirby, the superintendent at Gettysburg, will be joining us to talk about many changes in the park. Uh, Jason Phillips will join us on November 11th, talking about diehard rebels, what, what kept the Southern soldiers fighting. We'll talk about that today, too. November 18th, we've got Tom Crouch from the Smithsonian to... Uh, uh, join us from, from the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, I should add, to talk about Civil War aviation, something we have not touched on in the uh, 
uh, 200 shows of Civil War talk radio. After Thanksgiving, uh, Jimmy Price will be with us to talk about the, uh, the Battle of New Market Heights, uh, a USCT engagement. And then Wayne uh, uh, Shia, and I know I'm saying that wrong, I'll get him to correct me, will join us for a rescheduled visit on December 9th. I'm looking forward to talking with Wayne. The last time I saw him was in Gettysburg this summer, and we were sitting at a table in the lobby at Gettysburg College having an animated discussion uh, with Gary Gallagher, frequent guest on the show, Charles Nelson Riley of Civil War Talk Radio, and today's guest, Joseph Gladhar. Uh, Joe, are you there? How are you, Jerry? Good. You hear Glad me well? I, I hear you well. Uh, I, I'm glad you could join us today, and, and I, I know you're, you're traveling. You're in Wisconsin today? Yes. I had to give a talk last night and then work for the Veterans Museum this morning. It, the Veterans Museum, that's not the, uh, the, the, vet, the old Veterans Home, is it? Uh, no, they have a beautiful Veterans Museum right on the square across the street from the Capitol building, and they're merging it with the State Historical Society's museum, and they'll be moving it a few blocks away, so they were just planning some exhibits and wanted some input. Excellent. Well, it's, it's good that they, they consult people who know what they're talking about before they do that. I'm always glad to hear when... Well, there's no certainty when I'm involved. <laughs> <laughs> well... I, I am looking at uh, both on my desk here, both General Lee's Army and Soldiering in the Army of Northern Virginia, two really fascinating looks at this, this famous army. But I want to start by, uh, even before asking you the usual uh, uh, questions listeners often like to hear, like, uh, what do you do for, for a living? Uh, you and I know that. But, but I've got a question from a listener, and we don't get them all the time. And this listener has a pressing question about General Lee, which is, why did he wear the insignia of a Confederate colonel? I have no idea. Have any, that was my answer, too. No <laughs> idea. Uh, I didn't know he did that, but I, 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 I'm sure our listener knows better. He has one other question. Why, and this one you might actually want to venture an opinion on. Hmm. Why did Lee, on numerous occasions, uh, the listener writes, uh, rate McClellan as his most capable opponent? That one baffles me, and I can only think that it was hostility towards Grant because of Grant's, you know, association with the Union government and the fact that Grant defeated him in the end. The reality is that McClellan pales in comparison with, with, uh, with McClellan. I mean, McClellan pales in comparison with Grant. Grant's a vastly superior general. Yeah, it, it's hard to imagine. I, it, is it just sour grapes, you wonder? Just, uh, I, I don't know if it's It might be sour grapes. It might have been in the content, context. I, the only, I've only seen this cited one time, or by one individual, not by multiple individuals. And right. it could be simply incorrect. There, there are a lot of things that we do find these single quotes from that... Uh, you know, show up years later and, and then only from one source and then you wonder about them. Exactly. And so I, I can't help but wonder if that was accurate or not. Well, let me step back then and just to fill our listeners in. Uh, you're at uh, uh, ECU's uh, sister institution, uh, big sister institution, one would say, uh, uh, UNC Chapel Hill. 
Um, how are things there? How, how's the budget treating you guys? Oh, not well. We, you know, we're struggling. We unfortunately aren't able to replace retiring faculty, and it, we're increasing class size, and it's a difficult situation. Of course, no pay raises, but we have jobs. I'm not so worried about the no pay raises for multiple years, but I'm more concerned about replacing faculty who retire. That becomes a big issue. It's the same here. We've lost, we've got two people retiring this year, and uh, we're we're hoping to get their positions back. But uh, to to those, it's frustrating talking to folks on the outside, not so much listeners to Civil War Talk Radio, but just people you meet who think, uh, oh, you know, what's the big deal with the cut? So you have a little bigger class, but you can't offer the same things. You can't no, treat the students as well. This past year, we had four U.S. historians retire. We had Dick Cohn, who does American military history. We had Jacqueline Hall, who does women in labor in the 20th century. We had Theodore Perdue, who's probably the leading Indian historian. Mm-hmm. That is Native American historian, and we had our legal historian Jack Samanchi retire. So, and none of those people were replaced. So, and all of them from the U.S. side. So, you've just diminished the U.S. strength by probably twenty to twenty-five percent in one year. And and someone's got to step in and. and you know, teach the the survey courses at a minimum, and then you've you've got the specialty courses. That it it doesn't serve the students well when that happens. No, and it's not so much the survey classes, but it's it's more the specialty classes. So we now have no one teaching American legal, or we lose out on some of Theda's courses, or or we lose out in Jacqueline's courses, and of course, no one's teaching the graduate students in those in those areas. Dick Cohn, for example, not only taught the second half of American military history, but Dick was really well connected in Washington. So quite a number of our majors would graduate, and Dick would arrange for them to get jobs in the intelligence community, national security world, homeland security, DOD, those kinds of institutions, because Dick had all the personal contacts. When Dick steps down... He won't be teaching any more students, so those students won't have access to Dick and Dick's connections. It, it, it's and if no one steps in, you know, no one to grow new connections. It's very, That's very exactly frustrating. Right. So it's wow. you know, all told, it's quite the disaster, in my opinion, for the history department and for the students in the University of Wisconsin. In, I mean, in, University uh, of North Carolina. Yes, you're in Wisconsin at the moment. Yes, that's right. I'm sitting right. at an office desk in the history department at the University of Wisconsin. Well, that, that's well. Please thank our hosts uh, uh, later today. I shall. Well, let, let's. Uh, I, I always view the show each week as my hour vacation from worrying about the budget. So we'll we'll move forward. And, and uh, I really was struck when when first reading General Lee's army uh, just by the blurb on the back that points out. Nobody has written a book about this. There, there's, of course, uh, uh, you know, Douglas Southall Freeman's famous books on Lee and Lee's lieutenants. But how could there not have been somebody writing just a, a biography of an army, as, as has been done for all the other armies? Um, I can't speak to that. For one thing, it's a, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a big project, and I think a lot of people were squeezed out by Freeman because Lee's lieutenants is such a wonderful 
mm-hmm. set of books, and his bio, his four volume biography of Lee is sparkling as well. And so a lot of people were probably intimidated. And there were other studies like Clifford Dowdy and things of that nature, but nothing the way I I approached it. And so it, my book is, I'd like to think, very different. Well, it, it's different in one way that it's it's very statistical. Certainly your new book uh, on soldiering is explicitly statistical, but there's obviously a lot of statistical research underlying General Lee's army. Did you... Is this just sort of the, the fruit of a lifetime of research, or did you formulate this idea consciously and, and design it that way? If you go back to my first my dissertation, my first book on Sherman's Army, I did use statistics, but in a very rudimentary way. That was, after all, written in the early 1980s. And so I've always had an interest in statistics, and I did some work in forged in battle on white officers and on black soldiers, but this was the first time I tackled statistics in a really big way. And I just thought that we needed more hard data about the soldiers in Lee's army, and so I'd been thinking about it a while, and then eventually I... Um, decided to do it and got some help from a friend of mine, Kent Tadine, who's a political scientist in the sampling process. And my friend, Michael Parks, helped me organize the data initially that is set up access so I could load the data. And then eventually I learned Stata through the help of my friend, Carl Eschbach, and so I was able to crunch my own data. Now, when you talk about data, you didn't have information on all. Well, how many are we talking about? Uh, Six hundred soldiers Six who were selected through a series of random steps, because we don't have a single list of every soldier in Lee's army, so you can't do a purely random sample. So the way the sample worked was every I went through and compiled what's called an order of battle of Lee's army throughout the entire war, every unit that ever served in Lee's army. And then I divided them into infantry, cavalry, and artillery. And then I assigned a number to each one of the units. And in consultation with Kent, we decided that 600 soldiers would be large enough, 150 would be large enough for artillery and cavalry because they made up such a small percentage of the army. That is, artillery made up 6.9% of all soldiers, cavalry 11.3%, and 81.8% were infantry. And then 300 in the sample were infantry. The infantry sample had to be larger because such a higher percentage of the soldiers were infantrymen. And then once I I selected random numbers for 75 infantry units, 50 cavalry, 50 artillery, then I selected random numbers and then counted within those units to, to locate the names of the guys. So if the 157th soldier is in my sample, then I had to start from the very beginning of the compiled service records and start counting how many compiled service records there were until I got to 157, and that guy was in my sample. So it took me about six months just to get the 600 names in my sample. And and I guess I'm I'm not well-versed in statistics, but I know when when pollsters, you know, report on presidential candidates, they will have talked to a few thousand people out of 300 million and have a fairly accurate 
picture of what people think. So, so the 600 captures yeah, accurately. It varies de- depending on what qu- questions you're posing. And, in, and it varies as far as the range of the different answers that we get. So in most of the critical statistics that I saw, the margin of error is about plus or minus 4%, plus or minus 3.6%, something in that neighborhood. So it's not a very big, big margin for error. In some instances, the margin for error is minuscule because there's such unanimity among the soldiers. Now, how many men served in, in Army of Northern Virginia altogether? Do you have a rough idea of that? I would guess close to 200,000. Okay, so we, we can capture them through this sample. Um, there are, there are an some... educated guess. No one knows. Right. Well, this, this, it's an interesting thing. There's a lot of people apparently uh, 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 looking, at, uh, looking at statistics. Now, I'm thinking of the, uh, the effort being made, one in Virginia, one in North Carolina, to, to count mm-hmm. uh, the, the casualties of the war. There was a book by, I think it was Costa and someone else on uh, heroism and cowardice in the Civil War. Yeah. What I'm going to propose, let's take a short break, uh, play a few messages, and come back and, and talk about what these numbers show us about the soldiers in the Army of Northern Virginia. We'll be right back with Joe Glathar. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market if only i'd known i would have done things differently caring for an elderly loved one is not an easy responsibility it can be compared to raising children except children continue to learn new skills and develop as they get older to help you find the answers that you need, tune into Your Elder Care Coach with host Mike Gamble. If you are currently caring for an elderly loved one or you see the warning signs ahead, we'll help you provide the best care and still maintain your life. Listen every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio Variety. In the hustle and bustle world we live in, we need to be reminded that in all failures and successes, we are the common denominators. The change needs to come from within. Each week, let Daniel Gutierrez and Osmara Vindel help bring you the tools you need to manage your success. We'll talk with the movers and shakers of business and personal development and see what makes them tick. The only bilingual radio show, right here, right now. Aki Ia Ora airs live every Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Joe Glatar. He's the author of General Lee's Army from Victory to Collapse. And more recently, Soldiering in the Army of Northern Virginia, a statistical portrait of the troops who served under Robert E. Lee. And these books go together, the same common research base built them, 
General Lee's army, which is uh, uh, getting on 600 pages long, describes uh, the career of this army and will uh, it is really a biography of the army and the men who served in it. Uh, Freeman's already written about uh, Lee and about Lee's lieutenants. Here are the men themselves. The new book, Soldiering in the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, expands on this. It's a much sl more slender book, but it looks uh, in detail at the statistics of the, the men who served. Uh, Joe, let me just throw a question out. What was the most surprising thing you learned when you actually ran the numbers on the men who served in the Army of Northern Virginia? There were a few things that really, really surprised me. One was the staggering percentage of losses in the Army of Northern Virginia. So when you look at everyone who ever served in the Army of Northern Virginia, 70% of them were either killed in action, died of disease, were wounded in action at least once, were prisoners of war prior to Appomattox, or were discharged for a disability. That's a pretty staggering statistic. 70%. 70%. Now, another surprising statistic for me was the high percentage of soldiers who either owned slaves themselves or their families with whom they resided owned slaves. So you had over 37% of all soldiers in Lee's army who owned slaves. And in the South as a whole, only 19 0.9% of all families owned slaves. So in Lee's army, it was almost double the statistic. And then when you look at soldiers who lived in slave households, that is a household in which they, they owned slaves, 44.4% of the soldiers in Lee's army lived in households with slaves compared to 24.9% in the southern states. So slaveholding is greatly overrepresented in Lee's army. People always ask me, why is that? How could that be? The math doesn't work out. Well, it's simple demographics. The wealthier the families, the larger the family sizes were in the southern states, and therefore they had more sons whom they could send into the army. So the, the so slaveholding is overrepresented, which obvi has obvious political ramifications for yes. uh, uh, for the war. And when you compare wealth, for example, the median wealth in Lee's army is significantly higher than the median wealth of families from the states from which Lee drew his army. So wealthier soldiers are overrepresented in the army, and, uh, and poorer soldiers are actually a little underrepresented in Lee's army. That's interesting because people hear the, the phrase, it's a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. And th there's the impression the, the rich, politically connected people got the war going, but the poor did the actual fighting. And you're saying that's, that's not the case. Not the case at all. And in fact, when you look at the kill, statistics on killed and wounded, the wealthiest soldiers suffered by far the highest percentage of killed and wounded. And then, and then at a considerably lower level were the middle class and the poorer class. I thought it was interesting how you looked at wealth in, in doing this study because uh, when you just look at, at personal wealth, and, and I'm assuming you use 1860 census as the, the basis yes. for most of your statistics. Mm -hmm. So if you look at uh, a typical soldier, you might find that they report no personal wealth. They have no property. They don't 
uh, own, own much in the way of goods. They're, they're 19 years old, mm-hmm. living at home, and that would show up if you if you stop there. The answer is, oh, this guy has no money. That's exactly but, right. But of course, but they're that's living wrong. in the home of their parents, so they're enjoying the wealth of their parents. They haven't gone out on their own yet. And so I think you have to calculate the wealth of their parents. And as long as you're uniform in this standard of comparison, it's, it's perfectly reasonable. And I think it actually has good sense. Most college students, for example, aren't particularly wealthy, but, but their parents. And so if you want to ascertain how wealthy they are, you don't look at their income. You look at their parents' income because they're dependent on their parents. And if, so if you do the same with uh, the soldiers here, the ones who, who came from home, who were living under their parents' roof, uh, might not have owned any slaves individually, but they might be in a household with 50 slaves. Yeah, that's and, exactly right. I mean, uh, I remember one guy who, in the census record, his, he owned no property, and his dad was the former lieutenant governor of Georgia, and his father owned well over 100 slaves. Well, his dad was killed in an accident shortly after the, after the census was taken, so he and his brother inherited, I think it was 174 slaves. So, I mean, he was obviously a really wealthy guy. Yeah, you can't count him as, as one of the, the poor there. No, you there. can't count him as, as somebody with zero wealth or zero total property. I thought it was also interesting how, the, and, and math students will perk up their ears, when, when you compare the mean wealth of these soldiers uh, compared to the, uh, the median, the, the, the point where the, in the middle, half or above, half or mm-hmm. below, uh, because when you when you start introducing the the household wealth, some of the ones go way up high, like the one example you just gave, where the father owns a hundred slaves. That's exactly uh, right. That's why while I I include all those statistics, when I, I tend to use more the median wealth, the middle wealth, because that right. gives you a better sense. Fifty percent are below that, fifty percent are above that number. So it gives you a much better sense, whereas what you have in the Confederate States is selected individuals who are exceedingly wealthy. So the average wealth of a family in Lee's, in Lee's army is somewhere like something like $6,000, whereas the median wealth is much lower than that. It's about $1,350. So what you see is a small number of exceedingly wealthy people who are really skewing it. We could have... 199 people who are really poor and somebody who's staggeringly wealthy and and of course this, that it, would it, that one person who's staggeringly wealthy would elevate all the rest of us dramatically it, if if bill gates walks into the faculty lounge Exactly. Now the average wealth in the room is is 10 million dollars that's exactly right uh, exactly right i mean you could have you know, 99 people with no money, and Bill Gates, and the ne- and the average wealth in the room is 100 million dollars. <laughs> yeah, something that, like that's that. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly. So, so you capture that here and and show. Um, well, the the two things. I mean, you point out the the, the staggering number of casualties. Let's go back to that for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, the you have a, a bar graph showing the soldiers who died of disease and how. The, the number just goes down uh, a 45-degree angle from the first year of the war to the last year. Yep. Uh, but it doesn't mean the soldiers got healthier necessarily, does it? No, I think, you know, of course, <laughs> once you've died once, you can't do it again. 
And so sickly st- soldiers will, of course, go, die off. But I think as you got, as you served longer, you learned how to take care of yourself better. And in certain in- illnesses, you developed uh, immunities to contracting it second second time. So you may have gotten measles the first time, but your chances, and so you were badly ill. And a number of your friends died from the Ill- measles exposure, but you're not likely to get the measles a second time. So that number goes down. Yeah, it's, steady, the, it's a very steady decline. You, you exactly describe it accurately. It's almost a 45-degree angle straight down. Now, let me ask another question. The, the title of, of the General Lee's Army book, subtitle is From Victory to Collapse. And mm-hmm. after showing the, the high motivation that these troops had, and, and of course, I mean, Lee's Army is legendary. Everybody knows the, the things they accomplished uh, against long odds. But they end by collapsing. They end by being defeated. Uh, what is, what's the key to, to the failure, ultimately, of this army? Why, why didn't they win the war? Lee's army lost the war. As Pickett once said, I think the Yankees had something to do with it. <laughs> and the reality is that the Union was able to generate an enormous amount of military strength and apply that strength across the entire Confederacy, Lee's army among them. And virtually every institution in the Confederacy suffered dramatic fissures, cracks, some shattered, some collapsed, and Lee's army was among those. Lee's army held out longer than most. Remember the last year of the war from April of April 64 to April 65 Lee's army still inflicted 127,000 casualties on Union forces so the army still fought really well it's just that it couldn't sustain that kind of intensive pressure over a really really long period of time and it and it wore down it broke down Lee's army like it broke down every other or institution or aspect of Confederate life. That, that's an interesting way of thinking of it, that in some ways uh, you argue that the Lee's Army is the Confederacy. It's the one institution that survives the longest and, and functions the best. Uh, I think uh, most Southerners, well, Confederates, saw that to be the case, and many of the Union people did. I mean, Abraham Lincoln felt that way. Edwin M. Stanton, the Secretary of War, felt that way. Both of them talked about that once Lee's army was defeated, then they thought that the Confederacy would go down. But Lee's army had been so successful, it had generated such a great reputation, that the Confederate cause survived as long as Lee's army remained in existence. Now, for all that it had all this success, there there are weaknesses in the army. And you talk about... Uh, discipline, uh, not so much a discipline on the battlefield, but but uh, uh, military behavior, military discipline and subordination. Uh, that was not this army's strong suit, was it? No, it was not. Southerners and Northerners, especially Westerners, were raised in an environment where they were taught to be individualistic and to handle problems themselves, and they weren't particularly comfortable with taking orders. Southerners also had a very powerful sense of honor, which uh, created boundaries in their minds that prevented them from being ordered about because a person who's ordered about is akin to a slave and their society clearly distinguished them from slaves. 
So for these reasons, southern troops weren't, weren't the best behaved young uh, men, but they did their duty. They served effectively when they had to. But if, if they were called on, for example, to dig earthworks, that's, that's slaves' work. They, that's they, exactly they would balk right. at that. Early in the war, they had to confront that problem in a huge way, and Lee simply ordered them to do it, and the soldiers resented it, and Lee didn't care. He felt that it would save soldiers' lives, and that an, an effective army, a successful army, was one that blended combat prowess and work. And he cited the Romans. As, as an army that was an incredibly effective fighting force, but also one that worked hard and, and prepared its defensive positions and things of that nature and wasn't afraid to do the kind of manual work that Lee thought was necessary for the army to be successful. So that they went ahead and did it, uh, not necessarily happily. There were slaves with the army, though, weren't there? Yes, there were. Uh, but, you know... Originally, a lot of white white officers and some soldiers brought slaves with them to be servants, body servants. As the war went on, the Confederacy began to hire blacks, free blacks, and some slaves to be teamsters and things of that nature. But as but of course, a lot of the slaves would run away to the Union Army, so it became problematic to bring slaves. People were much more comfortable with hiring free blacks who, if they wanted to go to the Union, could just go. They didn't, have, they didn't need an excuse. So in that, in that regard, Southern or Confederate soldiers didn't have to worry. They hired free blacks to do these kinds of labors. Now, no, no question and answer session about Lee's army would be complete without me asking you about the uh, 30,000, or maybe it's more than that by now, 30,000 black Confederates in the army. Uh, yeah, that's did you it. find did you find them in your your study? No. <laughs> <laughs> well hidden, aren't yeah. they? <laughs> African Americans were not permitted to enlist in the Confederate Army until the very late stages of the war. So if a black enlisted in in the army, he did so by passing as a white man. So there there might have been some trivial number but not uh... absolutely i'm sure there were individuals of mixed racial background but they would have been very small in number very inconsequential in number why is that why does that question keep coming up i, I know it's not the first time you've heard it yep i can't i for the life of me don't understand it at all it's one of those things like the civil war was not about slavery <laughs> it keeps coming back and back, or, or that southern states didn't secede over slavery. Most recently, I heard people telling me that that they've been getting questions in their classrooms about didn't the tariff cause the Civil War? Wow. That, and, and you and I both know that's absurd. If one just looks at the secession documents, the justifications by the states that seceded, they explain it point blank that they're seceding to protect the institution of slavery. I mean, the ones I've seen are um, Texas, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, and they're all pretty blunt about why they're seceding. There's, it's, it's the smoking gun. It's, uh, it's Charles Dew's book on the, the, uh, the, the commissioners right. uh, just lays it all out. This is what the convention said they were doing and why they did it. And, uh, it's hard to uh, 
uh, hard to argue with with the written record. But people will will insist on doing that, I guess. Yeah, they're gonna, they're going to argue whether the, even though they have no evidence to sustain their argument. No, the tariff one gets me. Uh, the six hundred thousand at a minimum, and now they're edging the number up to seven hundred thousand killed during the war. Or died of disease. You know, that's an interesting article because if you read it carefully, the, the author makes that claim as an educated guess. But if you look at um, if you look at the statistics that have emerged from Virginia and North Carolina, the the number of soldiers who were, who died in the war are actually lower than people had anticipated. That is interesting. You're right. The North Carolina number is is of confirmed killed in the war is lower than the, the long time estimate. It's the Virginian, Virginia figure. So, then Virginia and North Carolina are about perfectly even, about roughly thirty thousand, thirty-one. But now I think that's thirty-one to thirty-two thousand. So they're, but they're considerably below what they had anticipated. Which was in the 40s in North Carolina's yeah. case, 44,000. So, and if those states are lower, my guess is that the other states will, will discover that their statistics are lower, too. Now, in the Union, the unions, because I'm doing a book on the Army of the Potomac now, and Excellent. you've done work in, in the Union records, the Union records are much more thorough, much more accurate. Yes. And my guess is that the Union has an accurate figure. Now, where the Union's going to drop the ball is those soldiers who died, say, four years later from their wartime wounds or injuries, and they're not going to be able to track those individuals. But, but, I mean, I've looked at the records, the reports from the War Department to the, the Congress in, I think it was published in 1866, and... You know they're they're very explicit about the number of soldiers who died. Yeah, and with with the pensions that their their dependents were seeking, there there was a reason to keep track very closely there. That's exactly we're, right. They, and the union just is really good at paperwork, and and yeah. also because the union wasn't collapsing, the Confederacy was collapsing, so it was very hard to keep track of paperwork. People weren't always filling out the paperwork. Some of the paperwork was completed, but it was destroyed. Remember, some of the staff in Lee's army were mm-hmm. burning wagons filled with records. When Lee found out, he was furious and put a halt to it. But by then, they had burned numerous wagons filled with records. That's why we don't have so many, all the runs of muster rolls and things like that. You know, though. Well, that's that brings up an interesting point about Lee's staff. Let's take another short break and come back and ask about staff work in Lee's army. Who who ran the show besides Lee, uh, and compare it to the the number of people necessary to run, say, a modern university. Uh, we'll come back and talk about that and other things with Joe Gladhar in just a few moments here on Civil War Talk Radio. <music> Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Tune in to Green with Envy every week for the most up-to-date information about living a green, fulfilling life. 
With a mix of serious inquiry and engaging humor, host Peter Terweem and his guest experts uncover topical issues and refreshing stories that'll keep you informed and inspired. We'll want to hear from you during the live program as well. Green with Envy is broadcast live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on World Talk Radio Variety. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness is delighted to finally have the opportunity to fulfill the requests of our many guests and listeners to extend the Mind, Brain, and Body experience to a second hour. Tune in for The Lyceum, Critiques of Ancient and Modern Understanding with Dr. Michael Kell. The purpose of this show is to explore and expand upon mankind's continual efforts to explain why we exist. Join us each week as we continue our fireside chats with some of the most remarkable thinkers living today. The Lyceum airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Joseph T. Glatthar, who's the author of General Lee's Army, From Victory to Collapse, and more recently, Soldiering in the Army of Northern Virginia, a statistical portrait of the troops who served under Robert E. Lee. And we've been talking about uh, the surprising things that these statistics show, the, the sample of 600 soldiers, uh, uh, Joe, that you, you've looked at in detail. One of the things that... Uh, maybe less from the, the statistical uh, look, but, but more the traditional records-based look at, at the Army of Northern Virginia is the, the staff work that supported the Army. People are always surprised if I'm talking to them about Abraham Lincoln to point out Lincoln had two secretaries for his White House staff and sometimes two or three other people assisting. But basically, the White House was a, a Lincoln and two, two secretaries. That's the whole show. Um, we can't run a 30-person history department with two secretaries today, and uh, the, the, the university needs hundreds of administrators to run about doing things. What was Lee's staff like? Lee kept a very small staff for a good reason. He knew that they needed to have more soldiers in the ranks. They need more people firing weapons, and so he felt that if he kept a smaller staff, it would force his subordinate officers to maintain smaller staffs, which thereby increased the number of soldiers who were, remained in the ranks and could use weapons. So Lee had a, a handful of aides and, and staff people and uh, assistant adjutants general, and then he had an engineer and he had a, you know, a few other staff people, artillery staff, and so on, but he kept it nice and small. I think, uh, don't bet the house on this, but I think he had eight people on the staff. Now, was that maybe too much of a good thing? Because I mean, as much as we like to complain about administrators, you do want someone who's counting the number of shoes that you need to get and buying the shoes and getting wagons for the shoes and bringing the shoes to the troops mm -hmm. so that the men have shoes to wear. And if you don't have good staff work, you go without shoes. That's exactly right. It's interesting that, but before Lee took over, Joseph E. Johnston was the Army commander, and Johnston was the former quartermaster general of the United States Army. And the paperwork, the staff work, 
when Johnston was commanding general was atrocious, and soldiers weren't getting fed properly, they weren't getting clothing properly, and when Lee stepped in, one of the first things he did was crack down on the paperwork. That is, people needed to do the paperwork so that the food would be there to, to feed the soldiers, and he really didn't tolerate that kind of misbehavior at lower levels, so he was very good at it. But you also need to understand that a lot of this work is very complex, and Lee had a great, great mind, a truly brilliant fellow, and so he had to devote a lot of his attention to logistics because the Confederacy had serious logistical problems, and if the problems weren't solved by Lee, then they weren't going to get solved at all. And so Lee had to devote an unusual amount of time to these sorts of matters, like making sure that there are shoes, making sure that there's forage for the animals, um, making sure that the troops are fed properly. These are kind of making sure even that railroads that are supplying his army were functioning effectively. He didn't have... I mean, ideally, he'd have somebody to do that for him. You know, Napoleon had Berthier to be his chief of staff and, and just take care of all the details. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Lee didn't have someone like that. I mean, he had good staff work, but, uh, but the Confederacy had tremendous, tremendous problems. And so Lee had to devote his attention to it because he was the one who had the clout. Also, you need to keep in mind as well that certain requirements can only be done by the Army commander. So, for example... Mm -hmm. The, the way the army was structured, Lee was the army commander, so he had to read every court-martial transcript to ensure that there was fairness there, whereas Grant in 1864 didn't have to do that. He had Meade to do that. Meade was the army commander, or Benjamin Butler in the Army of the James was the army commander. Those guys would read the court-martial transcripts. Grant didn't get saddled with that kind of administrative burden. And the same with Sherman, because they were both really Army group commanders, one step yes. above the Army commanders. Wow. So that, that relieves them of that. Yep. I mean, the, the, we, I hate to keep coming back, back home. We, we see our high-level administrators here signing individual travel requests these days, uh, trying to save money, but they're wasting so many hours of valuable time on these trivial documents uh, that they should trust their subordinates to handle. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. I, I mean, don't know if you guys go through that. But. Well, we've centralized uh, these sorts of things, so it's actually much more efficient. And the uh, person we have running our office, Joyce Lofton, is just super. She just really handles all these things. But I remember one time the I had to fly to Columbus, Ohio, and drive to Delaware, Ohio, and so I had to rent a car because Delaware, Ohio, is about 35 miles from Columbus. Right. And and I got challenged on it when I was the department chair. So I was livid because I was the department chair. I'm not going to lie about renting a car. <laughs> I said receipts. They wanted justification of of why I rented the car, and I wrote back because I couldn't walk. It was too far. 35 miles. Now, Lee's men and could then, have marched 35 course, miles. Then they still wouldn't reimburse, so my office manager had to intervene and resolve the little dispute. But it was truly insulting. It, and, and that goes on all the time and, and in any organization. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, we're pretty Army. good about things like that, I, I like to think. But still, it's, it can be very frustrating at times. Let me 
transition from administrative hell to to heaven uh, and ask a question about religion in Lee's Army. You have an interesting chapter about the revivals that went through. What, what did you find about that? What was interesting about the religious revivals is that they that the numbers who participated weren't nearly as great as people had had led others to believe. You know, really. Jones had written that book, and he claimed that there were 10,000 people attending um, a mass on Christmas Day. Well, you know, I sat down and looked at the or- at the where the units were located, and, you know, that would mean that some soldiers would have had to walk 10 miles each way on Christmas Day to make to accumulate that kind of number. And then I asked the chief historian of the park there at Fredericksburg, Bob Crick, and Bob said, no such thing happened. And I never saw a contemporary piece of evidence that indicated that it happened. So I began to get, you know, be, be curious about it. And then I, as I went through, I would see the reports on numbers and things like that. And, and they would talk about a huge revival and 110 guys from the brigade participated. Well, the brigade had well over a thousand guys. So you're not talking about a truly terrific number of individuals who participate. And it's interesting because George Rabel recently published a, a very fine book on religion in the Civil War. I'd seen similar numbers in Sherman's army and in black, among black soldiers, and George confirmed to me that in his, his book, which he published on a year or two later after mine, that those sorts of statistics were accurate. You know, Civil War soldiers are from an age group who are the least likely to attend church, statistically. People from roughly 18 to 25 are the least, males are the least likely in, in the population to attend church. And so those are the soldiers who, who uh, those are the age groups that, that are going to be hev- most heavily represented in Lee's army. When you mentioned age, one thing that I thought was really interesting, uh, when you broke down the the sample by by branch of service, cavalry, artillery, infantry, uh, how different they were. That uh, uh, the cavalry had way more students, uh, the artillery had way more guys from the city. Uh, that they really did divide themselves up on, on, on where they wanted to serve. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think the. The cavalry, it's, what's interesting is the median ages were roughly the same, and, mm-hmm. you know, within small, within a year or so. But there are big differences. That is, in the cavalry, you have lots of young guys because they're caught up in the fanfare, the, you know, the swashbuckling cavalier figure. And then the older guys who are in cavalry because they don't want to walk. They're older guys. <laughs> and then you deal with the artillery, a number of, of peacetime artillery uh, militia units were in urban areas, but, but more than that, the urban guys are more comfortable working as a team. In an urban environment, you're going to come in contact with other individuals more often, and you're going to work with other individuals more often than you would, say, as a farmer, which is a much more solitary pursuit. And as a result, the urban guys are more comfortable in that environment, so they're much more comfortable going into the artillery, I think. And that combined with the militia units from urban areas is why you have such heavy urban representation among the artillerists. Well, that, that kind of thing is, you know, would not come out just by reading a series of letters uh, the traditional way 
that we've studied Civil War soldiers. You really have to do what you've done here and break it down uh, by the numbers. We're down to just the last few moments. I want to ask you, uh, you said you're working on a book on the Army of the Potomac? Yes. I, I actually started this way back in 1985. It was my second project, and I started accumulating information, and then I read a collection of a white officer of black soldiers' letters at the State Historical Society of Wisconsin, and after a few days, I pushed aside the Army of the Potomac and went in that direction, ended up writing Forged in Battle, and then I decided to do Lee's Army instead of the Army of the Potomac. So I've gone back to the Army of the Potomac now, and I'm working frantically on my sample, which is going to be a little larger, 800 soldiers. And then once that's done, then I'm going to go back. Then I've got lots and lots of work. It's going to be a really long-term project because I've got to go through all the records at the National Archives, the official the materials, the stuff published in the official records, and the stuff in manuscript. And then I've, I mean, I've probably looked at 150 or 200 manuscript collections thus far, but that's probably one-tenth or one-fifteenth of what I'll end up looking at. Wow. Well, that, so so we've got a ways to go to wait for you to yeah, produce that. Yeah, don't hold that. your breath on this one, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, in the meantime, uh, your readers fortunately have these these two fine books, General Lee's Army, From Victory to Collapse, and Soldiering in the Army of Northern Virginia, a statistical portrait of the troops who served under Robert E. Lee. If you're a listener of Civil War Talk Radio, uh, you really can't not be familiar with both of these. They, they really fill a gap. Uh, that explains so much about Lee's army and who these men were and what they did. Uh, fascinating stuff, and, and uh, listeners, you'll want to get copies of both. Joe, I wish we had more time, but thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, Jerry, I'm sorry we didn't get to do this earlier, but it's a pleasure to be talking to you, and I look forward to seeing you soon. I'll see you down the road somewhere. Yep, listeners, I so. Ab- absolutely. Listeners, thank you, as always, for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.